Well, Gary Anderson may have forgotten more about aerodynamics than most will ever know, but that still leaves him with a huge amount of knowledge on what is the primary performance differentiator of Formula One cars in the 21st century. So we thought, why not dedicate an entire podcast to the aerodynamics of Grand Prix cars and answer some of your questions about this invisible art. I'm Ed Straw, but the star of the show, of course, is Gary Anderson, and he's right here, no longer on holiday, so hopefully the minimum of wildlife interruptions today. So how was the, the holiday, Gary? Did you get to power down the wind tunnel in your head for a few days? Ed, for me, life's one long holiday. Um, yeah, no, we had a great time out today. Lovely weather, which was good as well. So it was, it was lovely, yeah. Nice to get away for a little bit of a break and away from uh, this sort of stuff, but nice to be back as well. Rare chance for there to be a bit of a gap between races, but uh, it's soon going to pick up again with Sochi coming up. So let's crack on with the questions. Actually, the first question, and we've had loads of them on Twitter, so thanks very much to everyone. Sorry we won't get through all of them, but the first one's not really a question. It's just David Dalton says, I just want to say the Jordan 191 is the best looking F1 car ever, and that's down to you. Now, he's completely right there, but there is a question we can infer from that in that it does show that aerodynamics doesn't have to be ugly, does it? Yeah, I mean, thank you very much, David, for a start. Um, it's not just down to me. I had a couple of very, very good guys working with me, and Andrew Green and Mark Smith. Um, so the team was was very good that way. It 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 doesn't have to be ugly. Um, the regulations bring in the ugliness, to be honest. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you're restricted to these small areas now, so you have to get the maximum out of them possible. And stuff like the nose heights and that, it's all regulation stuff. You're trying to comply with the regulations or you're complying with regulations and trying to get the maximum downforce out of it. Back in 91, you know, the, the, the regulations were much more open. You could do things. Um, if we were as knowledgeable then as we are now, we could probably have made it ugly as well, but generate another 50, 100% downforce from it. Um, you know, that, that car back then, is, as, a, as a memory, just as far as downforce creation was concerned, we probably had some like 800, 850 kilograms at the, these, these are all quoted speeds at 150 miles an hour roughly, or quoted loads at 150 miles an hour. So we probably had 800, 850 kilograms of downforce. Today's cars at the same sort of speed are, are generating up towards 2,000 kilograms of downforce. So, you know, it's, it's, all about, it's all about bits and pieces and stuff that makes it all work. But back then you could make the car look nice and still generate decent downforce out of it i was always a a firm believer and still am to this day of consistent drivability downforce as opposed to peaky downforce which you know by using the airflow separation and stuff you can get very peaky downforce at certain ride heights and stuff but you know it's not with you all the time and that definitely spooks the driver so that was part of making the car look better as well and we've got a set of questions which broadly come under the header of, of ground effects which is well, I was going to say coming back under the new rules in 2022. Of course, ground effects never gone away, but you know the skirts that were banned at the end of 82 and all the underfloor complexity to, to maximise that has long since been been outlawed. I mean, the Stig asks, why does underbody downforce not disturb the following cars the way wings do? And would it improve racing if we got rid of front wings? So like some of the cars of, of, of the, the early 80s that, that, that did that. So yeah, well, I guess the question is, is, is underfloor, underbody, rather downforce actually not going to create disturbance for cars behind no it, it will create disturbance for the cars behind and again you know you, if you take a cross section through the rear center line of the rear axle of a, of a car you've got a certain width at the minute the overall car is two meters wide the tires are 650 diameter or something like that 65 centimeters so you've got that that area of blockage basically that has to get through the airflow and then has to somehow get itself back together again before the next thing that's coming along um, wants to use it 
So there will always be an effect, whether it's ground effect, whether it's upper wings, or whether it's just those big big wheels. The big wheels make more damage than anything, to be honest, you know, because they are a very draggy component. When you get a draggy component, that means they're not the flow around them is not very good. So you, it will still create an effect for the car behind. The thing about the ground effect is it, it sort of uses, it can use the, the airflow better than, and it doesn't care so much about turbulence. It still will, um, but, you know, it's, it will create turbulence. The car behind will suffer at a certain point behind it. Um, but as I say, the, the ground effect itself is not so critical as a, as a wing section to that turbulence. Sam Render asks about if the move to ground effect will lead to the teams reducing wing angles to reduce drag or keep it near current levels and add, and add more downforce. This is about how the 2022 regs might alter that trade-off. Well, I think the 2022 regs is, is, is being built to reduce the downforce levels on the cars so that they will create less turbulence as such. Um, but at the end of the day, the tyres dictate the sort of downforce. You know, the tyres react to downforce. The current tyres react to downforce quite dramatically. So a bit more load and you get sort of a double return um, to a certain point. Obviously, then you can overload the tyres as well. But you, So you will, you'll still pursue the optimum setup of downforce to drag that, that basically suits the tyres. So I think you'll, you'll, you will always see... Um, uh, for different circuits, a different level of downforce. I don't think you'll ever see the, you know, the front wings disappear like we we did in the past. That was just because the ground effect then was just such a big part of the, of the downforce, um, and and also wing design at that point time was was quite naive, I suppose you might call it. So the ground effect worked very very well with the sliding skirts, um, but I don't. I think you will still see the compromise being made between downforce and drag for every different circuit. Question: Looking back a little bit to the the early days of of skirts and. And ground effect, Cavallino Rampante says in a skirted ground effect car in the late 70s, early 80s, where you're trying to create a seal with the ground, ask how high would the skirt height have to be to negate that pressure differential and lose the ground effect, break the seal effectively? Um, not very high at all. I mean, one of the things with the skirts in the, in the, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, was that they were sort of held down by springs. Um, and once you hit a little bump or, you know, they'd start bouncing. And then people started putting in little dampers to try and stop them from bouncing. Uh, rubber bands, all sorts of stuff was there to hold them down onto the ground. You didn't want a lot of load onto the ground, but you you didn't want them to be bouncing. So I would have said in, in those days that, you know, a five millimetre gap at the front of the skirt, which is where the sort of underbody throat, as I suppose you might call it, would be very dramatic. You'd lose big percentages of downforce um, because of the airflow just being sucked in through that gap instead of being pulled through the throat of the, of the, of the, uh, wind, of the tunnel. We we had a skirt design for a or we manufactured skirts for a Formula One team. At that time, I was I had Anson, my own Formula Three company, with my brother-in-law Bob Simpson, and we did a skirt system, which had um, if you imagine it's three panels. You got an outer panel, then you got the sliding skirt in the middle, and you got an inner panel. And we did a skirt system which had a a sail cloth, uh, like a sail from a sailing boat, basically between the sliding panel and the inner panel. Um, and the, so the, the low pressure underneath the car pulled on that sailcloth and pulled the skirt down. Um, and it never, you know, it was very, very good. It stayed on the ground 99.99% of the time, as opposed to the springs, which would um, make the thing bounce a lot. So it's a very good design. It was really good. I, I was very disappointed when they bounced skirts because we were getting orders for like 10 car sets of, for a, a Grand Prix. Great little business, but then the, the FIA stepped in and banned them. So suddenly we need to do something else. 
yeah, not the only small supplier to suffer from that kind of thing over the years, unfortunately. But there's a, one more ground effect question, which Danny Herbert asked, what are the similarities and differences between the fundamental ground effect concept F1 used in the, the early 80s and what will be adopted in 2022? And... That's apart from there being better composite materials. Obviously, skirts aren't back, but ground effects, greater ground effects uh, technology is is available again. Well, uh, as we all know, the, the ground effect is there still. I mean, there is a, a, a flat bottom in the car. It's, it's um, got a step in the bottom of the car, a five centimetre step, but there's still a flat area there, and then you've got a diffuser at the back. So it's just chain, trading off those two components. At the minute, there's a sort of kink with a flat floor joins the diffuser, and that's where you get the, the peak low, low, low downforce area, low pressure area, uh, and, the, and the leading edge where the airflow has been pulled in around the, the radius of the leading edge. With the new regulations, the whole underfloor has now become a, a curved panel um, and a bigger diffuser. So it's, it's emphasising, it's, it's, it's increasing the effect of the diffuser um, onto a, a properly shaped underfloor panel, and they've got also the vertical turning vanes at the, underneath the floor, which they act a bit like the barge board, those parts. They're, they've been in Indy cars for a long time, and they sort of turn the airflow outwards, and they themselves will set up vortices, which will act as a seal for this, as a skirt. So it's um, a much more complicated, a much more efficient package of underfloor than we got currently. Um, it will be very different. I mean, in the old days, the 80s and 90s, the there was no control over the over the underfloor. So the underfloors got longer, the throat got closer to the ground, the diffusers got bigger, and, you know, they were ma- making massive amounts of downforce. You know, I'm talking these cars currently making 2,000 kilograms of downforce at, at 150 miles an hour. Probably, um, you know, back then in, in good ground effect days, they were, you know, the, the good ground effect cars were knocking on the door of that. So technology's come on a long, long way. But I don't think we'll ever go back to the same level of downforce from the underfloor. But um, it's in the right direction, I believe, these new regulations has changed. Although, from my point of view, it's a, it's a bit limited. It's too, a bit too prescriptive. Well, a question on those regulations from Dan Hardwick, which picks up on that point, who asks, how much scope will there be for development and for different concepts under the new rules in 2022? It seems there'll be fewer areas on the car that teams will be able to develop. Well, that's certainly true, isn't it? It's going to be very tight. Yes, Dan, I think the, you know, the first iteration from each team will be interesting to see because probably from it all, there is one that will work and the rest, the options are, are there to sort of exploit that little bit. But I think we'll see everybody honing in on it um, very, very quickly. Uh, that's the thing that I think we've got to be very careful of because, you know, as I say, everybody will head their own way to begin with and they'll be developing their car in a certain direction. But once they all come out, we might see a, we might see a, a trend through it, or we might see some some differences. But you know, one will definitely be better than the other one. So, uh, as I say, from my point of view, there isn't enough opportunity. Um, the cars will, uh, I say, look similar. For sure, they will look similar because everybody will head in the same direction. There, there are so there's going to be so few limit few areas where you can develop that the cars just won't look different at all. So. I think for the first year, it might be quite interesting. And then after that, it'll get a little bit mundane. A question from David Gossett, which touches on something you talked about in the last episode about the the, heart, the low noses. So we don't need to go to that, that element of it in too much detail. You can listen to the last episode for Gary's thoughts on that. But uh, David Gossett says, I'm curious why the regulations have swung between low and high noses and with the front wings. 2022 regs are leaning back towards early 90s F1 and current IndyCar than 
more recent F1 cars to curb dirty air for safety reasons. So I guess sort of explain the the evolution of the of the the high and low nose over time and and why it keep it does keep changing because part of it is that regulation for safety, isn't it? Yeah, it is part of that regulation for safety. I mean, the low noses were brought in for safety reasons to, um, to stop cars going over the top of each other. But just just going on to the aerodynamic side of it, as opposed to the the mechanical side of it or the safety side of it. You know, the, 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 the thing about the, the front of the car is very similar to the back of the car. And as I say, if you take a cross-section through the, fr- the rear axle, that's the cross-section that's blocked, and basically the airflow has to reattach itself somehow back to normal before another thing that uses it comes along. Whenever you take it across the front axle, again, you want exactly the same thing. Um, you want the minimum blockage possible. If you take a, a slice through the car, including the two front wheels and the chassis section, you want the minimal blockage possible because it's your car that uses that airflow that can get through between those front wheels then. So you're minimising the blockage, maximising the airflow through there because that's what's coming off the front wing. That's what you can do things with. If you had to, you know, if you blocked that hole up completely with a, with a wide chassis and a low chassis, you just wouldn't have any airflow getting to your car. So you, you t- tend to want to minimise it. So that led to the chassis getting as high as possible because the leading edge of the underfloor is all down low. So you want to get the best airflow as low as possible. And then that means you've got to compromise the front wing a little bit as to the flow coming off the front wing, making your car work. And we've seen, you know, through the years, all this turning vanes and the outwash stuff and all that. You know, you've got to get the bars, boards and all that stuff working. So you need the maximum airflow you can through between the front wheels. Um, And that just led to high chassis. But then, obviously, the FIA stepped in and they wanted a low crash structure. So the low nose appeared. Um... Or the low front of the nose appeared, but still with a high chassis. And then people like Mercedes and that got clever, making narrower noses and fitting the cape underneath it and doing all sorts of stuff to get the airflow to come around that nose very quickly and go underneath the chassis. So basically, if you took a horizontal slice through it front axle height, um, you know, you'd have a sort of big pair drop of nose that's letting the airflow come around the sides and get right into the middle of the car. So it's just about maximizing the airflow through between those front wheels as, as best possible. The next question comes from Luke Loduke, who says, could active aero help to reduce negative effects of following in turbulent air? And would active aero be prohibitively expensive? Um, again, it would be expensive, yes, for sure. Now, Formula One did try that. I think it was 2009. They had an adjustable front wing. Um, the driver could adjust it to put more downforce in the car. The problem is that you know when, you, when we talk about you losing, losing something like 20% of the front downforce, you'd need to have another wing come up come aboard to sort of get that back again it needs to be a massive change to to allow that to happen so um it just it just it just isn't a practical solution to the problem that's created by something else and you know then all these things might up to be in bandages you can do a bit but you can never make it enough so uh, rather than spend all that money trying to trying to do a bit um you might as well try and affect the real cause and you know fix the real problem of the turbulence from the other cars. Uh, you can, I mean, it can be done, and it can be done within the regulations we've got. It's, it's about making the teams work in that direction. Now, a lot of people criticise reverse grid races or qualifying or whatever, but my, my push for that is the fact that if you have something that gets a reward for, for having reverse championship um, races or qualifying, the fact that teams will then pursue, have to pursue better aerodynamics to race in traffic. And then that would also be a benefit when it comes to racing in general. 
I was really pleased to see James Allison sort of saying about the blue flags this week. Um, yeah, I mean, doing away with them completely is one step. And I wrote an article about it a while ago. I mean, my, my book would be instead of these three three sections that you have to, to allow a car to overtake, I would, I would have given it a lap um, because that gives you time to recover or get out of the way if you come out of the pits or whatever. Still meaning that, you know, the, the, the faster driver would have to get through at the end of the day, but there would be a bit more of a time limit on it. So he'd have a bit more opportunity to A, have to pull off a, an overtaking manoeuvre if he was being chased by somebody else. Anything we can do to create a situation where the teams have to build cars that have got more robust, uh, robust aerodynamics will be a benefit to Formula One in general. And uh, I think that's what we should be, should be pursuing. Next up, we've got a pair of questions looking back at the so-called X-Wings. Callan Martin says, can you explain the effects of those tower wings, as he calls them, especially when the Jordan 198 used them, and also if X-Wings hadn't been banned in the late 90s, what do you think F1 cars would look like nowadays? That second question is from Chris Hoffman. So these were the, the protrusions on the top of the side pods, weren't they? Very uh, very visually impactful, certainly. The thing about the X-Wings... Um you know, they weren't banned as such. Um, what was banned was the fact that the space where you could put them. Yeah, Formula One's all about boxes where you can do things and where you can't do things as such. Um, and basically, they, you know, there was a box left there, uh, as there is with like the T wings, as there was with the the T wing across the front of the monocoque for Monaco. Lots and lots of areas were left. You know, people thought you'd be stupid if you ever wanted to do it in there when they wrote the regulations. But then us being stupid, I had to use that and create a generate a wing somehow to, to create some downforce from those areas. So while there's opportunity, that you'll always jump in there. And again, it's it's still the same to be honest. The 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 thing is the the areas where you can do it are actually being you know reduced and reduced every year to be honest. We saw the T-wings a couple of years ago where they were up quite high and fell off quite often. Um, and then Formula 1 thought it would cover that, but it hadn't. There's a little box there where you can now put a T-wing in a bit lower down. So the teams spend their time looking through the regulations trying to see if all these numbers and positions of things actually join up. And if there's a little bit of a gap there, it's, uh, it's used. Actually, it's quite interesting. I can relate it to my garden. Whenever I bought this house that I'm in now, uh, the people before me bought some a bit of land down the bottom of the of the garden from the next door neighbour. But whenever they, um, the the planners put it all together, they'd left a strip across between the old land and the new land of, of about a metre wide, straight across the garden. So same same deal. Um, you know, we found that out through our solicitor. There was a strip across the land, whereas the owners here didn't didn't realise it was there. So we had to get it all changed. So while there's an opportunity to do something, have that space to build a wing, uh, put something in there to create downforce or change the airflow, then you'll take that opportunity. I don't, I don't, think, that, um, I don't think that if we hadn't banned X-wings, we'd still have banned areas. So I don't think cars would, you can't imagine what they would look like if they'd been free since 1990 to now and no regulations at all. I have no idea what they'd look like, but they definitely wouldn't look like what they are currently. But um, as I say, the regulations were put in with elimination boxes where you can't do things and uh, then you have to come up with the best solutions you can within those other areas. We've got a much broader question here. I like these ones. This one's from Will Pierce. He says, if a NASA or a Lockheed kind of aerodynamicist tried to develop something for F1 with little prior knowledge, what part would they find difficult? Would it be a fruitful cross-disciplinary challenge or just different maths? I, mean, I guess the first thing is largely they'll be 
used to making things go up and uh, here they're trying to make things go down. All the same principles, of course. But I guess this is what, what are the really esoteric challenges of race car aerodynamics? Well, I think, you know, any aerodynamics will adapt himself to a situation. Um, that's, first of all, the biggest difference, I suppose, is is the fact that we have got a vehicle that's running in close proximity to a, a, a fixed surface um, and close proximity to other vehicles traveling at similar speeds. So you've got a huge amount more turbulence to deal with. You've got a huge amount more effect from, from the ground to deal with. You've got four wheels on it that are just horrible things for airflow. So none of those sort of exist in what NASA or Lockheed would be doing at the moment. So a very, very different package of aerodynamics, but an aerodynamist will will just pick up the the pieces, and as you say, the mass might be a bit different, the challenge is a bit different, but the end result of exploiting it to its maximum is very similar. So I would think any any aerodynamist that works with those two would fit into a team and given a year to sort of get his head around the fact that it's very, very different, but the principles of the aerodynamics still function, would, would adapt to it quite quickly. Another one of those broad questions from Vinicius Marquez, who says, how does one develop an intuition about aerodynamics? That's a great question, because I think I think it's fair to say you've got quite a good intuitive understanding of aerodynamics, and it's not entirely rooted in academic study, is it? It's that, that You've built it up in a more practical way. Yeah, I mean, it's a very strange thing. It's, it's Aerodynamics are... are Odd. We always talk about Edwin Newey, you know, dreaming, seeing aerodynamics other people can't see. Uh, but it is a bit like that, to be honest. You know, you visualize stuff. You visualize it in your mind, what, what it can be doing, what it could be doing, and what you would like it to try to make it do. So it's, it has a, you know, all the numbers are great. Yeah, you have to have all the numbers, to be honest. But they're just numbers at the bottom of a spreadsheet. And the, the thing is, the car has to satisfy a human being, the driver, as far as its its performance and its window of performance is, is concerned. So um, I think, you know, once you get your head into it, I never be, I never just like to look at the numbers and say, oh, this is, this is better, we've got to go for that because it's added 10 kilograms of downforce to the car or something. I'd want to know why, how, where, from, and try to exploit it a bit more, make it a bit more robust. You know, if I found the front wing, for example, and I was adjusting it, and, you know, you went from, you know, I don't know, let's say 15 degrees to 16 degrees to 17 degrees and it all, you know, worked linearly and you got more downforce out of it and then you went to 18 degrees and it fell apart. You would always make sure you looked at that 17 to 18 degrees and try and understand why it fell apart so quickly and try and fix that so you, you had a bigger window of opportunity. And that comes from being, you know, a bit intuitive, just having a gut feel for the fact that, what happens in the wind tunnel or what happens in CFD compared to what happens on the track will be different. And if you're too close to the to the limits of it all, you need to leave yourself a little bit more space. And I, I say that that sort of does come a bit more from the from the intuitive part or the feeling of it or the seeing it as opposed to numbers on the bottom of a spreadsheet. Next, we've got a couple of questions about turbulence. Graham Teague says, should a high downforce car necessarily perform worse behind in dirtier than a low downforce car? And Udadeep Singh says, why are some more cars affected by dirty air than others? Well, if we talk about high downforce cars, I'm assuming that you're talking about a, a car with a certain amount, a certain level of downforce um, and against another car with a certain amount of downforce. The thing that makes, and we take Mercedes as an example, the thing that makes Mercedes a faster car in general is the fact that it, it generates more downforce. 
And the only way you can generate those more downforce is to um, stress the surfaces that create that downforce a bit more. You're making things work harder. All the surfaces are giving you that little bit more. It might be 1%, 2%, 5% or whatever, but they're all working harder. And the minute turbulence gets, onto, gets to them, the bigger the loss. So that's the thing about it is it is just the fact that your car generating more downforce has to come from somewhere. It's not that they're... It's not that they find lots and lots of areas to add things on that give more downforce. Like, i.e., let's go back to the X-Wings. You had a car that created downforce, you put on the X-Wings, you got more downforce because you had two more components there that were creating downforce. Whereas with current cars, you, you can't really do that much more. So you're just twisting the airflow that little bit more. You're just, you're just making it work that little bit harder on all those surfaces. So turbulence just creates a bigger problem for it. So cars that have more downforce from the same set of regulations will lose more. Um, so if you take, I don't know, Mercedes, let's say, a, a given track, being followed by a, 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 what you call it, now Alfa Tori, for example, or take a Red Bull against an Alfa Tori. You know, a Red Bull surface are exploited as much as Red Bull can do it. Alfa Tori, yeah, they're, they're working very, very hard, but once Alfa Tori would lose less downforce than the Red Bull, mainly because they have a little bit less to begin with. Next up, Mark Hendy us in in your time what aero park gave you the biggest improvement overnight i imagine there weren't many of those but um yeah, there's lots of bits the barge boards i think and they weren't quite overnight i don't think but the barge boards were always the, the biggest area if you we went very quickly from more or less nothing to a, a simple a reasonably simple barge board maybe maybe two components as opposed to the you know 500 components that we currently see but we went from a, a sort of nothing to a two-element a two barge board, and you probably found something like 10% on the car, yeah, 8 or 10% very quickly. So I would say that you know, the rest of the car was, was reasonably basic in the fact that it, you know, it needed to be there for the car to function. Side pods, the radiator inlets, the radiators, the diffuser, it was all, they're all fairly basic things, to be honest. But the barge boards were probably the one thing that was, was, a, was a fairly big switch. And, uh, and more downforce from it. And very, very efficient. The barge boards were hugely efficient. A question from Alexander Pitt, who asks simply, can cars have simple aerodynamics and still have high downforce? Um, it can be done. Um, it would have to look a bit different. Things would have to get bigger, I suppose you might call it. Um, rear wing, for example, you, you could make it work uh, and give you the downforce, but it would have to be a, a bigger rear wing if you weren't going to stress the surfaces so hard. And the same with the front wing. Now, that front wing will affect the rest of the car, that bit. So getting more downforce from the front wing, um, or getting the same downforce from a front wing, um, but with simple um, profile flaps and stuff, wouldn't be that good, wouldn't be that easy. Possible, I uh, have to look at it very, very closely, but I'm sure you could get same level of downforce we got now, um, as I say, from a simpler aerodynamic package, but they would have to be physically bigger, you know, longer cord, taller, whatever. As I say, they will have effect, uh, front wing would have an effect downstream, so you'd have to be a big research program before you get yourself back to where you are. Ivan Nikolov's next up with a, a cart-related question who says, what do you think about the Hanford device or something along the same lines that would create a massive slipstream opportunity? Would it work in modern F1? The Hanford device, of course, was attached to the rear wing in cart. I think 98 they brought it in to improve the racing on, on ovals. Yeah, I've had the privilege of working in the States at the, the Hanford device era. Um, and it's, uh, it's a difficult thing. You know, the drivers hated it. 
Um, because when you were following along behind, you know, you're doing on the ovals where they used them at to, to try and, it was a drag device basically to slow the cars down a bit. Um, and because of that, I'd give a tow. And the, the thing, um, thing that was strange was that the sort of the slipstreaming opportunity came as a secondary, uh, as a secondary thing. It was initially it was put on there to actually slow the cars down a bit. But the drivers following it, they, they felt that you were just like bouncing along the road. You just had no confidence uh, as to what was happening. We played around with it a little bit because at that point in time we were getting to a point where the cars were, were just a bit too fast, really, to be honest. And we ran um, with increased handford device style. It's like a T-piece on the back of the wing. It stuck down. The car still created some downforce, but um, I, I don't I don't think it's right for, for circuits with variation in speed. It was very good for the ovals because you had a you know a f- fairly fixed speed, to be honest. It was very good for creating that, that drag. And it was very good. That drag then gave the car behind it an opportunity to tow up there. But as I say, the second car didn't like it at all. It wasn't a nice thing to be following. I'm pleased to hear the combination of a plane going past and the dog barking because uh, the, the dog definitely doesn't like plane aerodynamics. No, the dog and aerodynamics don't go well together. And the, uh, actually, the thing, the vapor trails was quite interesting because you, they're so high up and yet the dog chases them down the garden. So interesting. Aerodynamics are always good stuff. <laughs> well, that's a good guard dog as well. Uh, last question, and this is probably the broadest question of all, from David Wolfenden, who says, over the last 50 years, do you think aero has had a positive or a negative impact in F1? And if negative, why do they still continue with it? And of course, you're well-placed to answer this question, as I think you've, you've basically had 45 years of involvement in one way, shape or form with F1. So you're you're almost as, in, as, old, as, the, uh, as old as the wing era in F1 in terms of your career. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question, David. It's it's one of those sort of things where, to a certain level, aerodynamics have made the racing a lot better. But once you start to use airflow uh, for grip, um, and you've got turbulence, it's it will it will create problems. Some teams handle it better than other teams, um, but you're never going to do away with it. Anything that moves through the airflow will always create a force of some sort, positive, negative, a drag, or whatever. Um, so at the end of the day, it's it's with you. It always was there. People just didn't realise it. And then they started making surfaces that, that made it a positive. Yeah, so it pushed the car onto the ground as opposed to lifting the car off the ground, to be honest. Yeah, the racing back in the old days without the wings and you see the, the drivers you know, a bit sideways and stuff, rear sliding around corners and whatever. It was great to see, but it, 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 isn't, it isn't what today is all about. So you know, every road car um, that's manufactured now you know, has to have a very low coefficients, drag, uh, all that sort of stuff. It's, it's just part of life, and, and I think we have to buy into the fact that it's there. Um, now, you, you know, regulations can be either completely open and you drive through a sort of set of goalposts at the end of the pit lane and the car has to be a minimum weight, and away you go, um, and, and allow everybody to do their own thing, which is fine. Um, but it's just so expensive. So we've got two or three things. You know, you've got aerodynamics, you've got budget control, you got safety. You have to balance all that somewhere. And I think 2022 will be interesting in the fact that I don't like it because it's very prescriptive, but I think it has to step back. It has to come back a step before it, re, before it readdresses itself. And 2022 is a good step backwards to get a different concept, philosophy, functioning, and then we'll see where it goes to in the future. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's very hard to roll back 
isn't it? And F1's gotten a bit of a mess with its aero rules over the years, so hopefully going in the right direction. Oh, well, thanks very much, Gary, for your excellent answers to the questions. Thanks very much to everyone who sent them in, and sorry if we couldn't get them all answered. Of course, do follow Gary Anderson on Twitter, at GaryAndersonF1, where you can fling questions in his direction, and we'll try and get to them on the podcast. So thanks very much for listening. Do head to race.com and don't forget the hyphen, of course. We'll be able to read all sorts of stuff about latest goings-on in F1, including what Gary has to say. And check out some of our other podcasts, including the Race F1 podcast and our YouTube channel as well. We'll be back next week to talk about all the big technical stories from the Russian Grand Prix. (laughs) 